Amen. You can be seated. Thank you, Wesley. Well, I want you to turn to someone near you this morning and say, I am awake. <laughs> we got to convince ourselves, right? I remember uh, when I was a teenager, uh, we lived in a double-wide mobile home, and uh, it was before HUD came in where, I don't know if you remember, it's an agency that, anyway, mobile homes had to be a certain level of condition or whatever. This is before that. And, uh, but I remember the rainy nights in the mobile home and the rain coming down. And I'll be honest with you, if I slept there last night, I, you probably wouldn't see me up here this morning because that was the most soothing thing to hear the rain hit that metal roof uh, at night. And I'm telling you, it was just something to it, I tell you. All right, if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to continue our series, Smoke and Mirrors. Now, I've already told you this, but... When it comes to what Paul's attempting to do here in the book of Colossians, he's attempting to show us who Jesus really is and what following him is really all about. It's almost like Paul wants you to know Jesus so well, he's presented him in so many different ways, true ways, the actual ways in which he existed and still exists today, in such a way that he wants you to never forget that, but know it so well that when you see false doctrine, something that's false teaching about Jesus, you'd be able to recognize it. And to me, I think that's great advice when it comes to, you know, who Jesus really is. Because we, we live in a culture today, and I've already told you this many times, it's really creating Jesus in their own image. They want Jesus to be who they want him to be. And, and, and just to be honest with you, what I'm hearing is not a whole lot like what I'm finding in the Bible. And so it's so important that we really know who he truly is. So look at the series introduction. The best way to not be taken in by that which is false is to know that which is true. That it's not just facts that you believe about him, but also that you experience him in such a way that he cannot be undenied when it comes to who he truly is. You see, the false teachers in the first century taught about a four-headed monster that consisted of intellectualism, which we saw last week, ritualism, what we're going to see today, mysticism, and legalism. And so today, I want us to really turn our attention not uh, to, to the whole idea of ritualism in the idea to a, of a person attempting to achieve or observe their way to God. And so where did all this ritualism come from? If you were to say, what I'm seeing across the landscape of Christianity, when I look and I see and I observe what I think I'm seeing, where did all the ritualism come from? Well, you, you literally have to go back to the fourth century. Constantine is uh, there, and he's about to go in. He's about to be the emperor of Rome. He's the night before the battle of the Melvian uh, Bridge near the city of Rome. Constantine is about to cross over, but that night he has a vision. And in that vision, a cross in the sky with this message, and it said, Be this, by this sign, conquer. He took this to be a message from God, so he had all his soldiers put the symbol of the cross on their helmets and shields. Then he led them into battle where he was victorious. He took this to mean that God had given him the victory. And from this victory, Constantine converted to Christianity. Then he had his whole army converted. Then ultimately, once he took the empire, the whole empire was what we would say Christianized. At that point, the Roman Empire was then a Christian state. 
Now, at this point, several things happened to the church. The church moved out of the catacombs or the secret locations of worship into many pagan temples. The persecution of the church that that church had experienced was over. 350 years of persecution, that part was over. And Christianity became officially acceptable. Now, many would consider this to be a glorious victory. If you look over history and say, oh, wow, this is, is this going to turn out good? Is this, how's this going to, but many looking back now would say it ultimately became a tragedy for the church. The problem was that the unconverted masses were moving into the church, carrying with it its pagan ceremonies and rituals. So therefore, what you had is a hybrid between a lot of paganism with its rituals and symbols and all the symbolic things that come with it and Christianity. They began to merge. False teaching began to emerge with rituals and ceremonies that, which were now necessary for salvation. Holiness was now considered by what days you observed, what rituals you carried out, what you ate, what you wore, who you prayed to. So ritualism then became a vital part of the Christian faith, as did the dark days of Christianity. This became the foundation for which the Roman Catholic Church was born. But the reality is that it started, really, if you want to think about it, in the first century. As, as early as Paul, when Paul begins to write to the church at Colossae, he's not only writing to them about this subject, he wrote it to the church at uh, Galatians, the Galatian church. He writes it to several churches out there that many of them were saying ritual was very important to salvation. And many would say, unless these rituals were done and these certain ceremonies were done, there would be no salvation. And so Paul was counteracting that. So it really began even in the church's infancy. So look at the introduction. A ritual is not bad in and of itself. A ritual is an established form of conducting a ceremony. So so your marriage, if you really think about it, was a form of a ritual. Baptism, even communion, they can be symbols of a ritual. There can be that. So a ritual, if you think about it, has certain words that are said and certain actions that are carried out. The Old Testament rituals, which were shadows, pointed to something of reality, which will become the substance. We know that substance is going to be Jesus. So in Colossians chapter 2, look at verse 16, Paul writes, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The substance of what all those things represented, those were the shadows. From the shadows came the substance, and the substance is Jesus Christ. So, think about it. A shadow is a dim outline of some object or some reality. A shadow is really a promise of someone or something coming in the context of the Old Testament. As it relates to the Old Testament, ritualism was a preview of someone who was to come. Of course, we know that was Jesus. So look back on your outline. Ritualism can be excessive devotion to rituals instead of the excessive devotion to the reality of Jesus Christ. And that was going on in the earliest days of the church. There were those who were saying, yes, Jesus is this, but you still need this, and you need to add this, and if you're not aware of this, then you you may not have salvation at all. 
And Paul was contradicting, contradicting all this. So the first thing we see here when it comes to ritual is the vanity of the ritual. Now, someone's rightly said this. Pagan ritual, regardless of how you may Christianize it, is still standing in the shadows instead of stepping into the light of the reality of Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we can note from that statement is this. Rituals cannot save the sinner. They can't do it. It's not possible. No one can be saved by ritual. Every world religion has its ritual practices. The Hindus bathing in a certain river. Muslims praying at certain times of the day. Catholics praying to certain saints. Vance Hafner, he was a, one of them uh, tongue-in-cheek preachers from years ago. He said this concerning rituals. When they start lighting the candles, it's a good sign that the power's turned off. He's talking about the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of what God brings. The problem with rituals is when one thinks that rituals will be their saving grace. Think about it. Is that the sign? Is that what we find out here in our culture? Well, if you've ever done any witnessing before, and you were basically asked a person a question, something like this, what do you think it takes for a person to go to heaven? You will know right away, are they trusting in rituals or in a true relationship with Jesus Christ? Because their answers will give it away. They'll say, well, I attend this church down the road. Guess what? Did you know attending here Sunday after Sunday can be nothing more than just a ritual for you? Did you know that? How about this? Well, I was baptized when I was a child, and that's great and everything, but it doesn't matter how many times you've been in the water, you can still come up not knowing Jesus. Ritual doesn't do it. Taking communion. Well, I took communion. I've been taking communion ever since I was a child. Or I, I've gone to Mass. I, I, I'm one of those. I'm there all the time. Again, those things can be mere ritual. Paul dealt with the misunderstanding of ritual in the first century. First of all, he's going to point out several examples. And the first one he brings up is circumcision. Now, keep in mind that God did give this ritual in the Old Testament. The cutting off of the foreskin of the male was to illustrate the cutting away of rebellion in the human heart. But God never intended this ritual to save anyone, but rather it, was a demonst it demonstrated outwardly a new inward reality. That's really what was happening here. God never meant ritual to save. But I want you to hear it clearly in Scripture. In Acts 15.1, look here on the screen. It says, and certain men came down from Judea and taught that the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There was a group of people. And by the way, the closer you got to Jerusalem, if you were living in the first century, and you were out there, and you were trying to live out your faith, and you were trying to know who the true and living Jesus is, and how do you come by salvation, you would have heard all kinds of false teachings that were surrounded and even made its way into the church itself. And there were those who were called the Judaizers, and they were those who, who were saved accordingly, based on what we think. And they started coming to the church, and they said, do you know something? It's great that you've become a Christian and a follower of Jesus, but guess what? You've got to convert to Judaism first. And here's how you do this. You enter into a covenant relationship with God. That requires circumcision. You've got to start keeping the festivals. You've got to start doing this. You've got to start doing that. And Paul, boy, every time he, he encountered it, he almost got to the point of being angry about it. 
when he was basically saying, no, Jesus is all you need. That's all you need for salvation. And that there were many who were out there. It got so serious in the first century that they literally had to bring a council together in Jerusalem. And they brought them together. The apostles were there, those who were still living. And they were all there, and they were gathered together. And their intention was to say, okay, we've got to come together on this. Because even the apostles were looking at things in different ways. Some of the Peter and Paul at times didn't even agree. And they came together, and basically what they were saying, Paul was saying, hey, where I'm operating at, where God's led me to go, everywhere I go, I'm seeing this message. We got to have one message, and that message needs to be salvation only comes by the grace of God through the work of the cross. And that's pretty much what was going on here. So they, they, they made the ritual the means for salvation, and, and they made the substance, they made the shadow the substance. So that's, that's, what's, that's what he's talking about in verse 11 of chapter 2. It says this, Paul says, In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. You don't need a physical circumcision. You need a spiritual circumcision. It's a matter of the heart. And then he says, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Again, what is he trying to say? Jesus has moved us from the shadows into the reality, into the spiritual of what he's bringing when it comes to his work of the cross. And then there was a newer ritual that could be misunderstood. So then he talks about baptism. Verse 12 says, We're buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, when a person is baptized, this is what we believe. We believe they are proclaiming the gospel. When a person is baptized, they are, they, they are proclaiming that the old self is dead and the new life now begins. They're also proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which, by the way, is the gospel. So baptism is an outward picture of an inward reality. So look on your outline. Therefore, baptism does not confirm salvation, but does confess salvation. It's not one of those things where it has to happen for salvation. No, it's nothing more than a symbol. It's a symbol of what salvation is to me. And it's that old life becoming new life in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the ritual of baptism does not save you. It's just an outward sign or demonstration of an inward reality of our identification in Jesus. Now, let me just say this about baptism. I do believe baptism is very important. Please understand that. Paul would never say it's not important. But Paul was saying you, 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 you've messed up the language here. It's not the substance of salvation in and of itself. It is a demonstration of that salvation. And he's very clear in that. Next, ritual. Rituals cannot sanctify the saint. Now, when we say sanctify, we're literally meaning it can't set you apart for what God has for you. It's not going to make you holy to do these things. That's really, literally what this statement means. Someone has asked the question, and I think it's a great question. When Jesus comes back, will he recognize the church? Will he recognize the church? I mean, that, that's, man, that will get you to evaluating things quickly, won't it? And, and the reason I say that is because 
by the time he shows up the first time, the religious establishment didn't recognize him at all. They didn't recognize him. Do, do you remember? Have you, have you read the Bible back there? You, you'll see the, the establishment had no use for Jesus. And, and it's because they didn't recognize him. The Pharisees in their pride in Matthew 23 is all about Jesus calling out the Pharisees for their made-up rituals that they gave them, that gave them opportunity to show how godly they thought they were. And so they were so caught up in ritual and ceremonial things and the pride that had developed in their heart that they totally missed who Jesus was and even what he was teaching. Matter of fact, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, listen to what he says. Look here on the screen. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand praying in the synagogues on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Now, let me just tell you who he's talking about here. He's talking about the religious establishment. He's namely talking about the Pharisees of that day. They, they were the ones who were doing this. He said, surely I say to you, they have their reward." Their reward is the fact that they get, that others will look at them with respect and all that, but that's all they're going to get. And then it goes on, but when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut your door, pray to your father who's in a secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. He's basically saying, hey, if you want a true, lasting relationship that's satisfying, that brings joy and peace and all the things you're really looking for, it's not going to be found out there doing certain things. It's going to be in the sanctity of the fact that you and God alone are in this relationship. He's putting it back on the relationship. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do. Now, we know that if you go and look at any type of pagan worship, you hear vain repetition all the time. Guess what? That made its way into the church. And, and basically, the Pharisees were some of the leading people in this. And so all of a sudden, you've got the Christians and, and, and the Jews and all this. It's all wrapped up in one. He says, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, don't be like them. For your father knows the things you have need of before you even ask him. He, what does he do? He keeps talking about where they're trying to carry this relationship, which is a bunch of uh, rituals and ceremonial things. He's saying, no, it's found in the true relationship with the heavenly father. That's where it is. He goes further. Paul addresses that rituals cannot sanctify the saint through, look on your outline, diets. And it's really the whole idea of health versus holiness. Now, let me say this. Old Testament is filled with dietary laws. When you eat and don't eat, may have something to do with making you healthier, but it has nothing to do with make you, making you holier. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is when you look back at the old law and you begin to try to wrap your mind around it. Again, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus who was to come. But the law also did a second thing. It established God's people as being different than the rest of the world. And it's really the whole idea of sanctification, of being sanctified. It's set apart. God wanted his people to be set apart in a covenant relationship with him. And the way he demonstrated that with the, with the, with the rest of the world looking in, they would eat different. They would act different. They, 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 they had a moral law about them. Uh, all these things were in place. 
because he wanted them to look different. So it wasn't just a foreshadowing. It was the fact that he was setting them apart to look different that the world may take note that these are those in a covenant relationship. So, but it's not intended to make one holier. You're not one bit holier because you eat or drink certain foods. God's word's very clear about this. It doesn't matter when Gary tells us that Diet Coke is the way to go, and he won't go to a restaurant unless they serve Diet Coke. Diet Coke ain't going to save him, I promise you. I've told him that many times, <laughs> but, but it is. It's one of those things. Those things don't do that. He says this again. Look at verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. It goes further. Paul says it in Romans chapter 14. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not found in ritual. It's not found in what you eat and don't eat. It's found in the perfect relationship you find in Christ. He goes on in Hebrews chapter 13. And let me tell you why Hebrews was even written. Hebrews was written to prove that Jesus is superior to everything in the universe. The prophets, the angels, the dietary laws, everything. That's why it was even written. And he goes on. He says, don't be cared about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established how? By grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Get your eyes off all that. It's now Jesus. Next, Paul deals with the issue of days. And this idea of homage versus holiness. And homage literally means special acknowledgments. And so he says this in verse 16 also. He says, don't, don't let them do this to you. When he, yeah, so, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Now, the Jews had many special days throughout the year. They had festivals that were yearly. They had new moons that were monthly. They had Sabbaths that were weekly. All to try to direct the thoughts of the, possibly some of this was a foreshadowing of Jesus, but also it set the people of God apart. They were set apart because they did do these things. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus. It was a sign of the covenant relationship they were in with God. All those things were important. But those things were not intended to make you more holy necessarily or you didn't bring you into a right relationship with God. It was the separating you out. And so why would anyone, think about this, want to live in the shadows when the substance of the shadows is offered to them? We are not saved or sanctified nor more holy by observing specific day diets or special days. It doesn't come that way. We got to keep an eye on those things, basically. Now, why would people be drawn to those type things? Well, think about it. It's pretty easy to say, okay, I'm going to designate this day. I'm not going to eat this certain thing. I'm going to eat only that. I'm... You, it would be easy to, 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 don't you think that would be, of course, our diet? We don't want anybody messing with that, do we? We've proved that already. How many of you already broken your diet when you started on January 1st? Everybody? Anybody? But, how many of you just quit doing it years ago because it didn't work? You know, that's me too. But anyway, uh, but the point I'm trying to make here is the fact that these things will not accomplish what God desires to accomplish in you. And so what, what, let's look at what happens. We've talked about the shadows. Now let's look at the substance. Remember the Old Testament pointed to the reality of Jesus. And the first thing we see here is the victory of the cross. The reality of salvation is not found in ritualism. It's found in the reality of Jesus' finished work and victory on the cross. 
Look at verse 19. For it pleased the Father. I'm sorry, this is Colossians chapter 1. Look at verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Jesus all the fullness should dwell. And by him, that's Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, how? Through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. What does that mean? Anytime you hear this language of being reconciled, it's talking about a restored relationship. He's bringing a relationship. So the whole realm of what Jesus was and what he was trying to bring on the scene and how we move from the shadow into the, into the reality of who Jesus is, it's all by way of a relationship. We've been reconciled. Now think of this. Look at this. The cross can handle the guilt of sin. How many of you are thankful for that? It handles it. Verse 13 of chapter 2, And you being dead in your trespasses... That means you were hopelessly lost in sin. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, that means you were not in a covenant relationship with God. He is made alive together with him. And by the way, it's only by him. Having forgiven you all trespasses, everything, everything. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have a past that even you have a hard time forgiving yourself for? How many of you have a past that those you love the most even are having a difficult time forgiving you? But here's one thing you got to know about what God offers through Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. It's been forgiven. You see, we're sinners by two ways. Hopefully you know this by now. You were born in sin, and later you sin. That's how you're a sinner. You're born in sin, okay? I've said this many times. Uh, we got this new granddaughter. Oh, my goodness. She, she was with us the last couple of days, and, and she smiles, and it's like, wow. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, she's six weeks old, and she called me. She said, I love you, granddaddy, the other day. <laughs> girl's smart. I'm telling you, she's sharp. She is very sharp. <laughs> but, but the thing I'm trying to get you to see is the fact that that little bundle of joy, let a hunger pain hit her. You see the little sinner that she is. She wants what she wants, and she wants it now. You know, just like her mother was. <laughs> but, but the thing I'm trying to tell you is this, that we're all born with this condition that only the cross could take care of. We, we all have proven that we were born in that condition because we are sinners, and only the cross can handle that. So one of the hardest things for us to do is to forgive, but that's not hard for God. He's, bring to, he's brought us into a restored relationship with God. Jesus did that on our behalf. And so when we start throwing ritual at it, we're cheapening what God has already done. Next, the cross can handle the grievance, grievance of sin. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. Having wiped out, that means canceled out, the handwriting of requirements. That was our debt because of our sin. That was against us. These were the charges, which was contrary to us. I mean, it was heavy. There was, it wasn't working for our good to be there. And he is taking it away. How? Having nailed it to the cross. And by the way, 
That is the only solution to our sin, is it was nailed to the cross. Not a ritual, not some made-up thing that we're looking at doing and all that. No, no, no. It, it, one solution, the cross. So what happened to our guilt of sin? What, what happened to those grievances against us? Look at verse 14. Having wiped out. I love this. This is not original to me, but it's so good. At Mount Sinai, the conditions were read, the commandments of God. At Mount Calvary, the conditions were dealt with, the forgiveness of God. That's good. That's really good. The, think about it. Mount Sinai, the law was given. You know what the law proved to us? It proved to us we were sinners. That's all it said. This is the standard of God. And guess what? We looked at it and we said, oh my goodness, I have failed miserably. How many of you would say that? <laughs> but yet the cross at Calvary took care of it. It dealt with it. Next, the cross can handle the grip of Satan. Look at verse 15. All this, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphant over them in it. In what? In the cross. The cross. Think about it. The enemy thought he had Jesus. He's dead now. He's gone. We won. But did he? He didn't. You know, I think sometimes we give the enemy too much credit. We, we think he can see the future. We think he can do this. We think he, he... No. He's so limited. You realize he was a created being, don't you? He was. And the cross, no matter how much damage he's done throughout this world, he was defeated at the cross. And his days are numbered based on the authority of what we just read. So when Jesus died on the cross, the enemy thought he won. Jesus defeating sin... The cross, death, and the enemy created a different reality that is available to us. One not bound in meaningless ritual, but in victory over sin and death and a relationship with him that will satisfy the deepest needs of our hearts. And so here's how I want to kind of look at this. Whatever you're holding, whatever ritual you're holding up that's greater than Jesus and the finished work of the cross, and the fact you're in a relationship with, that, with him now based on that, will never satisfy. I don't care if you come here Sunday morning, you stay through the whole time we're here. And, and, and maybe you even show up on Wednesday night and say, yeah, I'm, yeah, I mean. I'm, and you even, maybe you show up on other days because you think, man, I really want to get in good. That it, it's not going to be, it won't even satisfy who you are and what's in your deepest recesses of your life. It'll only come by relationship with Jesus Christ. It's been made possible by the cross of Jesus. So look at the application. And this is all Paul's trying to say. It's time to step from the shadows of ritualism into the substance of reality. Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. Which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Jesus in the Gospels calls us out of ritualism and into a relationship with him. As we close this morning, I want to I bring this up real quick. Been kind of hard on ritual, right? Does baptism have its place? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful representation and demonstration of what God has done in our life. But that's all it is, is a demonstration is of that. Communion. Is it a beautiful time? Absolutely. We're going back and we're remembering what Jesus did on our behalf. We've got to do that. Now, you say, why do we have to do it? Because he said to remember. He said to keep going back to that. Keep looking at that. It focuses us on what he's done on our behalf. But none of that supersedes more than the relationship he's called you into in which your past is forgiven and your future is held by him. Nothing supersedes that. So if it's a matter of identifying with that in baptism, so be it. If it's a matter of thinking back about what all that means, so be it. But beyond that, the rest don't matter. The rest do not matter. So I want to close with this. And you've seen this before. I like to bring this up at least a couple times a year. I, what happened many years ago, I wanted to make the plan of salvation as easy as possible. Okay? I didn't want anybody to leave our gatherings thinking they had a salvation in Jesus Christ when they really didn't. And so what God gave me was this progression of salvation, is what we'll call it. And how does it come about? Look here on the screen. First of all, how did I become saved? There was an awareness of a supreme being. For some of you, you were raised in church. You never know of a time you didn't ha weren't aware of that, right? But for some people, they got to start there. Awareness of a supreme being. And then there was the initial awareness of the gospel. You began to hear about the good news that Jesus died on the cross. Go to our preschoolers and, and ask a question. I think I even said this last week. What would our answer be? It'll be Jesus. Well, what did he do? He died on the cross. Most preschoolers get that. They, they've heard that. But it's that initial awareness of the gospel. And then there's the awareness of the fundamentals of the gospel. That's when it starts to take shape in our heart, when we begin to see how it all plays out. And then we grasp the implications of the gospel. We begin to grasp it. We begin to, to see it for what it is. And again, it's the Holy Spirit working this process in us. And then we have a positive attitude towards the gospel. There's something that we sense that, you know, I, I want to be fulfilled. I want Jesus to do what, he's called, what he says he'd do in my life. And then we have a personal problem of recognition. That's where there's conviction. That's when we see the implications of the gospel, and then we stand there and we see Jesus as he truly is, and we are suddenly aware of how short we come up. And it brings about that through conviction. We see that we're a sinner. We see that we need to believe in him. But then there's the decision to act. You see, I'm convinced that there's many people further back on the progression that think they have salvation. They, they, have a, they have a great positive attitude towards, towards the gospel. But it's never brought them to a point in which they see their sin and how offensive it is to God. And they never got to a point where they were willing to act on it. And that act, what does the Bible say? Whether it comes through confession. Confession, what are we confessing? We're confessing our sin. We're confessing that he is who he says he is. Then there's repentance. We turn away from that sin. It's not just feeling sorry for our sin. 
anyone who's caught will feel sorry for what they've done. It's basically saying, this has driven me that I don't know, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I want to turn my life around. And then there's the faith in Jesus. There's a profession, but it doesn't end there. I'm not just calling on him and, and, and professing myself to him. I'm now making him Lord in my life. Lord, you're the Lord. It's your call. That willingness brings us to salvation. It brings us salvation. And once salvation occurs, the Bible says we're a new creation. Something, you know what it literally means? Something that's never existed before. You mean I can be saved when I'm 42 years of age and I can become something that's never existed before? Absolutely. That's what the Bible says. Because now you're in Christ. And then next, the Holy Spirit indwells me now. And y'all, that's what brings the change. That's what brings the change. And what does that look like? Changes over, occur over behavior, attitudes. Our perspective begins to change. All those things begin to happen in me. Now, does that mean I'm starting to live a perfect life now? Not me. I don't know about you. But you know something? When I'm not living that perfect life that doesn't measure up to the standards that God has, and he has so much more for me, when I'm not living there, guess what? I'm feeling the conviction. Something I've never felt before. That's the new part of me that's never been there before. Is now I can't be satisfied in sin. Now it, just, it doesn't add up. There's something moving against me when I take those steps towards sin. And I sense it and I feel it. It's the Holy Spirit. He indwells us now. That's the reality of salvation. And then we realize the importance of the Word of God in prayer. We realize the role of the church in our lives. We, we realize how important it is to share our story. And we serve. And that's how it all comes about. But the good works come after salvation. It's, it's not something we do before to gain the salvation. No, we just come to on His terms. We don't, you see, the, the problem with the world today is they want to set the terms for salvation. They want to set the terms. God's already set the terms. It comes by way of Jesus. But then all these things begin to occur. So where does baptism fit in? Baptism occurs when I receive that salvation. And I stand before God's people in, in a baptismal pool, and I identify with Jesus at that moment by going under the water and coming back up. The old life is laid down. The new life has risen. The death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel. Now I'm identifying in that because that's the reality of who I am now. I'm no longer existing in the shadows. I'm living in the reality. That's what this is all about. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come to you right now. and Lord, I, I know that when we look at different things in your word, we, we, can, we can kind of be confused about certain things. But Father, I thank you that Paul was so direct on certain things when it comes to our salvation. Father, I thank you that it's not a matter of us still holding on to the rituals of old and trying to work our way to salvation. But Father, it's, it's, it's already there. It's available. It's, it's us inviting you into our life. It's us responding to the Holy Spirit's call of conviction to repent of our sins and turn our life over to you. And Father, I just pray for everyone in this room that we will carefully look at where we are when it comes to the gospel.
Are we people who have sat here year after year in your church and had a favorable, uh, positive attitude toward the gospel and we thought it was great and everything, but we've never personally, personally given our life to you in a decision to act on that gospel? Father, if there's someone here today, I pray that they won't leave this place unless they know you as their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray you'll have your way in their heart. Father, I pray if there's someone here today, Lord, that doesn't think they're worthy of being forgiven, that your word says all things have been forgiven. I pray that, that you'll help them to renounce the lies of the enemy, uh, saying that they can't. But Father, help them to respond to your word this morning, to come by way of conviction, to turn our life over to you. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the way of the cross that provides us relationship that we can have with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're getting ready to sing. I hope you'll join us. Just go ahead and stand to your feet, if you will. If God's worked in your heart in some way, you need someone to pray with you, you need someone to help you kind of work through the information we shared with you this morning, I'll be here at the front. Just do what God's calling you to do in these moments. Will you?